I'm Jacob Efron, an investor at Redpoint, and this is Vital Signs, a podcast on cutting edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. Today, I'm joined by Lucia Huang, the CEO and co-founder of Osmond. Osmond's a really interesting company focused on helping clinicians and researchers improve treatments for moderate and severe mental health conditions. These treatments include ketamine, psychedelics, and neuromodulation. Osmond has two parts of the business. The first is they build an electronic health record for clinicians that provide these treatments. And the second is they work with researchers to improve our understanding of how they work. The company's raised over $50 million from investors, including DFJ and General Catalyst. And Lucia has really fascinating perspectives on where the future of mental health treatment's headed. Without further ado, Lucia, if you want to kind of introduce yourself and give us a bit of context on what Osmine does and, and how you came to found the company. Sounds great. Thank you, Jacob. I'm really excited to be here. And I've learned so much from you having spent your time at Flatiron, etc. So just excited to be having this conversation. But a little bit about myself, as mentioned, I'm Lucia. I'm co-founder and CEO here at Osmind. And at Osmind, we've built a platform for breakthrough mental health research and treatment to help the medical community advance life-saving mental health interventions. I've been working on this for about two, two and a half years and have spent my career in health tech and healthcare. So actually went to the same undergrad as Jacob at Yale and then went on to finance where I focused on healthcare companies. So spent some time in investment banking and then uh, investing on the healthcare side. Realized that the investing side wasn't for me personally, so no offense and hopefully no offense taken, <laughs> but I wanted to move into operating. So I ended up leaving my investing job early, took a huge pay cut, moved back out to the Bay Area and joined an early stage neuroscience biotech startup called Verge Genomics. The company was 10 people at the time using AI for ALS and Parkinson's cures, and it was just amazing. Um, I fell in love with everything startup and everything neuroscience and where the field is going. And so fortunately, I met my co-founder a few years ago when we were both at Stanford. I was doing my MBA degree and he was doing his med school degree. And we both bonded over sort of our shared nerdiness around where the field is going. And then also a lot of frustrations that we had both seen with the mental health care system. We actually both grew up in households where mental health is highly stigmatized and grew up in the Bay Area where, like many places, all places in the U.S. really, there are a lot of challenges with adolescent mental health. And so we ended up co-founding Ozmind with really the intent to break the status quo and to advance some of these newer treatments that are coming online, such as psychedelic medicine and neuromodulation. But a lot of this was actually born out of a class that we took when we were at Stanford. It was the inaugural psychedelic medicine course, which at the time was just so cool, like having Stanford Med, one of these prestigious academic institutions, hosting a class on psychedelic medicine. And that's kind of when the aha moment struck. And we realized that this is just not a fad, it's real science, and that really we're seeing a lot of innovation happening in the field in the same way that oncology has transformed in the last decade with lots of ways to better diagnose patients, more objective measures better treatments, uh, precision medicine, all of that is happening now in neuropsychiatry. And we really wanted to build what we see as the infrastructure layer to make it all happen. No, it's, it's awesome. And, you know, I guess one thing that might be helpful as we kind of dive in here is maybe if you could kind of just level set us on kind of mental health treatments today, the kind of current state of, of treatment resistant depression. And, yeah. you know, I think probably folks are broadly familiar with SSRIs. 
um, mm-hmm. like Zoloft, Lexapro, but would love, you know, obviously you kind of work across a broad range of different treatment modalities and would love to kind of just get, you know, a sense of what's happening in the ecosystem today, you know, even just how many clinics are actually providing some of these treatments. Maybe yeah. we can kind of kick off there. For sure. Yeah. I think as you said it best, there's been a ton of funding poured into mental health and it's great. The more the merrier, but we just need all the help we can get. At the same time, the current you know landscape for how patients are treated and the patient journey is really dire. Um, most patients will go through to multiple healthcare providers, typically start with their PCP, hopefully go to therapy, hopefully see a psychiatrist. And then if they are at that level of, of acuity are prescribed various antidepressants that are from the 1980s. So it's pretty crazy, but most people don't know that the Zolofts and Lexapros of the world were approved back in the 70s and 80s when women weren't even allowed in clinical trials. So you can only imagine what the efficacy is of some of these treatments. And there's been a lot of real world studies that show that some of these antidepressants, while may work for some people, don't work at all for other people and have pretty horrible side effects to the point where, you know, a patient who tries an antidepressant usually has to wait six to 12 weeks to see if it even works. And then you might need to try something else or add a different treatment on top of it. Again, you may be experiencing side effects. You may have to have dosages adjusted. And between each of these trials and errors, it's a lot of waiting and hoping that things work. And what that has resulted in is that in America, over 15 million people have tried and failed multiple lines of antidepressant therapy. And that's, it's frustrating. And I think, again, what's hopeful about our field is that we really wanna change where that stat is going. And so now there's been a lot of research in the past few decades on newer modalities. A lot of these modalities are called rapid acting antidepressants, which means that don't have to wait six to 12 weeks. You don't have to wait and take a pill every single day. There are actually treatments that are in clinical settings showing to be very efficacious, such as things like psychedelic medicine um, or neuromodulation. So just in this example, MDMA-assisted therapy is a treatment that's undergoing phase three trials right now. It's really interesting for multiple reasons, but for one, it's actually the first treatment that's going through the FDA that has therapy as part of the label. So um, a patient would take MDMA, which is classically known as Molly, and go through a session with multiple therapists, and they're under MDMA for you know six or eight hours. They're getting therapy at the same time, and the primary indication right now is for PTSD. And so you can think sort of logically, if someone's having a really hard time processing trauma, they're able to open up and connect more with their therapist, develop a stronger therapeutic alliance, and really process some of these difficult memories. What that's shown in phase three is that I think the data was like 67% of people who on average had had PTSD for 17 years, many former vets, no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis at all after a couple sessions of MDMA-assisted therapy. And that was in comparison with, I think it was 30% 30 or so in the control arm. So we're really seeing that these therapies are very powerful, especially for patients that have had refractory conditions. Totally. No, I mean, it's, 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 you know, some of the studies you mentioned, I think are, are incredibly, uh, you know, powerful and, and, and really impressive early mm-hmm. results. I, I guess I'd be curious, you know, obviously you spend so much of your day talking to clinicians, you know, it's, it's fascinating. You met your co-founder kind of in one of the first classes, you know, that was devoted to these kinds of treatments. I'm kind of curious, like in, in, you know, your sense of clinicians reactions to these treatments and kind of where we are today in terms of how they're being provided and, yeah. and how much folks are learning about them. And even in the few years you've, you've been in the space, I'm curious if you've, you've noticed any changes. Around yeah. That. Yeah. That's been really interesting to see. And you'd asked how many clinics right now are providing that hard to say because the field is moving so quickly and growing so fast. So I feel like every time I see market research, it's already outdated by the time it's published just from our like anecdotal and like our own research, we've seen 
over a thousand clinics that right now are providing ketamine treatment, which is the only sort of legal FDA approved treatment. And then as mentioned, MDMA assisted therapy, psilocybin assisted therapy, a number of others are in development. On the neuromodulation side, similar sort of size, there's a lot of really interesting research going on there with things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is basically get this really cool helmet that's got magnets and it stimulates your brain in certain ways and has been FDA approved for both depression and OCD. But yeah, I think the field overall is growing really quickly and it's hard to sort of quantify and capture the excitement, but just anecdotally from a lot of providers we speak with and to sort of like put ourselves in their shoes, like we're talking about a field that has been underserved for 40 or 50 years. And a lot of providers were frustrated and desperate using tools that were extremely blunt, so to speak, like blunt tools, blunt measures, blunt treatments that didn't necessarily work for every individual. And so what you're seeing now is like a renaissance and a resurgence of excitement to the point where a lot of providers are actually getting mental health degrees. They're coming from other specialties. They're so excited about joining this revolution and being able to use kind of the most exciting treatments that are in medicine for, for a very long time. So we're seeing a lot of excitement. From a VC standpoint, that's also been very interesting to watch. It's, I think I saw that it was maybe a billion dollars was deployed close to in like sort of innovative treatments, not just psychedelics, but others that that includes biotech. And yeah, we're seeing that the whole field is really starting to pick up because of the huge unmet need. And the fact that now it's one of the most exciting areas of medicine. Totally. And I think, you know, it, it kind of with your first product, obviously, a lot of the focus has been, you know, making sure providers that are uh, providing this care have kind of the technology and the EHR backbone yeah. they need to do that. And so I'd love to hear, you know, obviously, you've spent a ton of time understanding kind of the different workflows that are required here. Maybe just talk a little bit about what folks were using from a technology perspective to pair with these treatments and then how you kind of thought about, you know, some of the different needs that might be required for these clinicians. Yes. Um, so like you said, our model is we've built our own electronic health record from the ground up and it serves providers who are seeing patients with moderate to severe mental health patients. I'm guessing we'll get to this part later, but a big part of the thesis here is that we're also able to collect real world data through this software. So not only do the providers better manage their patients with this software, um, we also help to contribute to research. So we work with pharmaceutical companies to analyze the data to contribute to better drug development in the future. But yeah, on the provider side of the house, it has been really interesting to see. Early on in our startup journey, we talked to so, so many psychiatrists and mental health care providers. We knocked on folks' doors, we went to a bunch of psychiatrists' offices all around California, and it was pretty shocking to see that providers, a lot of them are still using pen and paper. A big part of that was because mental health care providers were not as subject to meaningful use because many of them don't take Medicare insurance and meaningful use is the mandate that requires you know providers to use EHRs or they're penalized if they don't, if they're taking Medicare patients. And so a lot of these providers were sort of just left behind because software did not pop up to address their needs. And so that was one big subset of providers. Another subset was those using like really legacy systems, some of which don't even have anything to do with mental health. So we saw that providers like didn't have any way to really track how patients were doing, which is a bit terrifying because in any other specialty, you would have some sort of outcomes that you're tracking to know how to deliver and tailor your care, but not so much in mental health. So yeah, we saw that there was a really big opportunity to build better software so that our providers can actually focus on clinical care and not have to piece together whatever they were doing before. 
So yeah, big changes all around with where the field is going. We're trying to help providers practice more evidence-based care to implement measurement-based care, which means that they actually measure how patients are doing over time and adjust how they may treat or tailor care based off of that. And then lastly, because providers' workflows are changing so much with some of these new treatments, um, trying to improve clinical workflow based off of that. So for example, with some of these new treatments that are coming online, the FDA has a lot of rigorous mandates about risk tracking, which makes sense given some of these treatments are dissociative or have abuse potential and providers need to do all sorts of documentation. We saw that some providers are doing like an extra hour of documentation a day. Again, sometimes on pen and paper that they had to like manually fax, um, classic healthcare fail. Uh, and we saw that there's just an opportunity to automate all of that. Where, where do those requirements come from? Yeah, the FDA has something called the Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy, and they implement that for drugs that have what's perceived higher risk. So not just mental health drugs, but you know, oncology and other ones too, typically like more procedural types of treatments. In this case, again, because it's usually dissociative, like we need to make sure the patient doesn't drive afterwards and it's monitored afterwards and we take their vitals the entire time and things like that. So that's a lot of what we automate too, to allow it to providers to more easily adopt these treatments. Yeah, that, that sounds like tremendously helpful uh, area yeah. to have kind of workflow tools and, and better tech around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think part of also, you know, what you were describing was, you know, being able to have more kind of touch points gathering data with patients and kind of monitoring in between visits. And obviously, I think that really feeds into to the research side of your business. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was struck earlier when you were saying a lot of these treatments, you know, if you look at SSRIs, some of these studies were conducted, you know, before women were in trials, or it seems like there's lots of areas of the mental health space that just haven't been studied super well. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you could speak a little bit to how you look at that and then how you're sitting on this, such an interesting potential set of data. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you think about prioritizing the different kinds of, of things you could study? I'm sure there's an endless set of, uh, of interesting questions you could go. Oh, answer. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so many things. It's been really interesting in mental health for the reasons you described. It's been traditionally extremely hard to capture relevant and high quality data on real world patients. And that's for some of the reasons that we discussed. Patients are seeing all sorts of different providers. Providers are using pen and paper. Like there's no way we can get real world evidence if, unless we read every scrap of paper that has documentation on patients. Oftentimes, uh, providers don't have a good way of capturing the right outcomes, so we're not able to measure improvement or deterioration in patients. For all those reasons, there's been, to date, a lot of holes in how we collect data, and there actually hasn't been a huge sample size collected because it's just so difficult. The gold standard in mental health research is this study called the STAR-D, which I think is from 20 years ago or so and has a patient sample size of a couple thousand. But that was the largest and sort of most robust study that showed what it's like to be a treatment-resistant depression patient and how you know patients usually respond. So just to give you a sense of sort of, even though there are so many mental health patients and the prevalence is, is so high, like we can't actually get that much good, complete data on them. And I think that's why like building an EHR in this case really makes sense. And a lot of people ask like, oh gosh, why would you build an EHR? It's so difficult. Uh, well, for one, I think there's a really big need and that's what we saw with so many of the providers that we spoke with. But secondly, it like really helps us to capture the data the way we want all in the same place and with uh, high quality from the start. And because of that, there's so many different use cases that we can look at on the research and life sciences side. So I think with like traditional real world evidence companies that Flatiron you know, has really paved the way with, there's a lot we can do on trial design and uh, retrospective studies, like what 
types of treatments are working for specific patients? Is it, you know, somebody who failed Lexapro and Zoloft should be given ketamine or should not be given ketamine or what dosage should they be giving? Things like that, that we can really study with our data. But I think the next era of real world evidence is starting to introduce prospective studies as well. And because we have such strong relationships with our providers at the point of care, we can really start to introduce, well, hmm, what if we started collecting EEG? Or what if we started collecting digital phenotyping data and try to correlate improvement with that? There's like a lot of innovation, as I mentioned, that's happening now. And I think that having our relationships and the EHR that we can adjust at the point of care allows us to be flexible to the types of data we collect and ultimately make a bigger impact on research. Totally. And you know, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like obviously, you know, you, you work pretty closely with, with folks on the pharma side. Where are you kind of seeing, yeah. I think, you know, to paint with broad strokes, it feels like for a while mental health maybe wasn't a, a particular area of pharma interest. And then, you know, in, in the last years, it seems like it's, it started to pick up a bit. But kind of mm-hmm. curious if you, you know, what you're hearing on, on the life sciences side and, um, you know, across all the treatment modalities you support, where you're kind of seeing activity. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I think part of it is just to put it bluntly, like capitalism, there's a lot of patients that are in need. And I think COVID has really highlighted that. And you're right, like pharma had a pullback from neuroscience about five years ago. And we're seeing a lot of pharma companies, both big and small, sort of start diving back into it, because they see that there's this huge unmet need and market opportunity. So there's been a lot of investment in not just psychiatry, but neuropsych, talking about, you know, neurodegeneration as well for that reason. The second is because of like the basic science is like finally catching up. Same thing happened in oncology, right? Like you finally got things like CAR-T and gene therapy and like really exciting innovation because the basic science was starting to catch up. And same thing, right, in in neuroscience where we're starting to get a better understanding of the brain. Brain imaging is, you know, still in earlier days from like a clinical care perspective, but it's starting to shed some light on how we might treat patients more precisely. So that's also why we're starting to see like more actual treatments being developed. And so how that matters from a data perspective is I think that a lot of companies now are trying to figure out like what exactly is the patient journey for treatment resistant depression. It's so complicated and so convoluted at times. So just to get a better sense of how we can track what patients go through, like what is their typical types of treatments that they try, how many dosages, what sorts of providers do they go to? That's all really interesting for someone who's trying to come in at the ground level. But as we get into more intensive drug development, we're actually getting into phase three, then there's a lot of interesting, more specific clinical insights, such as what we talked about, like what are the specific treatments that have resulted in response or relapse? Like what are the demographic or medical history background that also result in the same thing? Those are all really interesting. I think the next frontier where the field is headed is like some of the talk around novel biomarkers. Our field is not like oncology where, you know, we can't measure a tumor and tell a patient like what type of treatment they should get, but hopefully we move in that direction. And maybe it's small steps, like we measure somebody's phone activity and we say, oh gosh, they haven't been picking up their calls. They've just ignored all of their phone calls. They haven't been texting or they haven't even left their house. Like we use those sorts of measures to um, be able to be more predictive about if somebody is gonna relapse or experience a depressive episode, and then we can intervene and treat people more precisely. So I think that's where the field is headed. It's really, really exciting. 
And we'll start to see that show up in the way that we develop and ultimately um, disseminate drugs too. Super interesting. No, I think that the parallel you draw to oncology is, is fascinating, right? You know, obviously there's been such a rise of companion diagnostics and ways to kind of segment populations and figure mm-hmm. out, you know, which treatments are effective for, for which types of patients. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think the vision in, in the mental health space makes a ton of sense. I guess I'm curious, you know, obviously I think you, you're in such an interesting position to study a lot of those potential biomarkers. Is that kind of segmentation happening in the field today? And, and to what extent does that kind of influence clinical care right now, the ability to kind of say, oh, for this certain type of patient, you know, maybe this type of treatment or dosage or whatever it is, is the right fit. Yeah, definitely. It's earlier days. And there's a lot of things that are being done sort of on the fringes or not quite yet in mainstream settings. A couple examples I'll highlight. So there are some biotechs that are trying to now combine brain imaging with their actual drug development. So an example is Alto Neuroscience. They use EEG to subtype patients and to figure out what patients are better fits for certain types of treatments by using EEG signatures. So sort of similar to life genomic signatures as the analogy in cancer. Others are actually happening in the clinical care setting, like you said. There are a few types of TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, that require fMRI before the actual treatment. And that way, like we can hone in on certain parts of the brain that might need more stimulation than others. So it's starting to happen. It's again, definitely early days, like you said, but I think it's really promising. And our EEG is like cancer genomics. It's, you know, it takes a lot of research and data collection, but I'm excited about where that's headed and what that could mean for patients. It's, it's super exciting. And, and I think, you know, earlier you talked about a bit of like kind of the provider journey and learning about these treatments and, and, and kind of accepting them. Yeah. I'm curious what you're seeing on like the payer and employer side. And, you know, obviously I feel like in American healthcare, you gotta, gotta have a CPT code or get something covered for, you know, adoption to really take off. And, and yeah. you know, I'm sure you're privy to a lot of these conversations. Curious kind of what you're seeing and hearing on, on that end. You would hope a CPT code even works, right? Right. Um, but yeah, it, it's been it's been interesting. I think yeah, there's a couple ways that we think about this from a treatment perspective. I mentioned ketamine is what's legal right now. It's actually FDA approved as an anesthetic. It wasn't ever formally approved for depression. So providers are prescribing that off label. And so that's interesting because insurance companies don't cover that right now. And we actually published the largest real world study on ketamine to date earlier this year that showed that ketamine has a 54% effectiveness rate on treatment refractory patients in the real world, which is was super exciting. You know, anecdotally, at least we didn't do a head to head, but uh, it was higher than a lot of other real world studies on traditional antidepressants. Um, and despite that, insurance companies aren't covering it because ketamine never underwent randomized controlled trials in depression. So that's been a really funky one to see because anecdotally, and so many you know clin- clinicians are prescribing it off-label for depression, but patients are having to pay out of pocket. And depending on the type of route of administration you get for ketamine, patients are paying anywhere from you know $3,000 to much, much more for a course of treatments for ketamine, which again is in the real world showing to be quite effective. So I hope that there's something that we can do from a data perspective to prove to insurers that it is not only effective, but cost effective because that's what they care about. And a lot of the data that we collect is trying to get to that. Like, how do we look at the claims data to prove that patients who receive ketamine treatment end up lowering costs? How do we look at functional measures to show that quality of life has improved from an employer perspective? Can we look at things like, you know, days missed from work and all these sorts of important measures that like are much more objective and show that these treatments are worth covering. In the future, as we have more FDA approved treatments that 
have undergone uh, randomized control trials for the indication at hand. I think we will see insurance companies starting to cover it. I think it's not gonna be perfect from the start because these treatments are stigmatized and like payers are very, very conservative. And the thought of you know United com- covering MDMA assisted therapy is a little bit mind boggling. I think we're gonna get there, but it highlights the importance of real world data even more and that we need to continue to show that these treatments are cost effective even after approval so that we can improve their overall reimbursement and elevate them in the formulary. I, I guess I'm curious, yeah, what, you know, what you think, you know, obviously there, there, it seems like there's so many different directions of, of things that are being studied right now, but to kind of get to that day where, you know, I think, like you said, like United decides to approve MDMA or, or, or whatnot, yeah. you know, what's kind of required from, you know, whether it's kind of safety, efficacy, cost effectiveness, how you think yeah. about kind of like the, you know, and, and obviously you're part of this, but even how the space as a whole is developing, you know, the evidence base that's required to, to kind of get to that point. I mean, even the cultural side of it of, of getting folks comfortable with it this is a it, this is a big question to crack jacob so no pressure for sure but <laughs> i think two two angles i'm thinking about just going back to the data side i think that's going to continue to be really important and it's on the entire community to track and prove that these things work because it would be such a shame for it to all go into the ether so yeah, we're focused on collecting a lot of the data that we mentioned, obviously claims and some of the functional measures like, you know, quality of life and ability to go to work, ability to be productive that I think are necessary to continue to show that these are worth covering. From a stigma perspective, something I think a lot about and something I think that there's a gap right now in this sort of alternative innovative treatment landscape is really plugging into the mainstream healthcare system. And in psychedelics in particular, it's interesting because there's like this whole decrim movement going on. There's FDA approved drug pathways. And I think those are both very important, but ultimately what's gonna get us to make these mainstream is if like PCPs are aware of it. So much of mental health care starts at the PCP level. I think I read a stat that was like 70% of antidepressants are prescribed by PCPs, not psychiatrists. And it just shows that like our PCPs are really on the front lines here. And that's not changing anytime soon. So I think a lot about like, how can we get them educated and get them bought in um, and get them to help sort of funnel patients to the right specialists and providers when they need them. So for us to get to that point where United is covering MDMA assisted therapy, I think our whole healthcare system needs to work together. Totally. And, and is that kind of typical of, of the care journey of a lot of patients that are finding you know their way to the clinics that you you guys support? Is that you know is it mostly through primary care doctors today, or is it kind of through patients' own initiative and research? You know, yeah. how how are you seeing kind of you know uh, primary care receptiveness to to some of these types of practices? It's a bit of both. And because our a lot of our practices deal with higher acuity patients, oftentimes by the time they see one of our providers, they've gone through multiple upstream providers. Like they've gone to a PCP that's then referred them to a therapist that then referred them to a psychiatrist that then refers them to a specialist. Like that sort of whole waterfall happens. I think what I envision is in the future, we use MDMA assisted therapy, not as like a fifth line treatment, but as like a second, you know, maybe even first line, second line at least treatment that like a PCP can kind of recommend. But yeah, a lot of our patients right now are going through multiple providers. And then the interesting part is there has been sort of an increase in the direct-to-consumer nature of how patients are connecting with providers. You're seeing that with a lot of the psychedelic startups like Mindbloom and New Life and some of these companies that are doing telemedicine for ketamine. 
and future psychedelics. So I think that's an interesting trend that we'll see continue because patients are now hearing about it from their friends or they're researching it online. And hopefully we can just put the right guardrails in place so that they get care safely. Yeah. No, I'd be really curious for your thoughts on those models. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, a big thing they address is given there's not payer coverage today. I mean, a lot of these treatments are really expensive. And so I think, you know, it seems like some of those companies have done a really effective job you know, helping lower the price point to, to access some of these treatments. At the same time, you obviously don't have the same guardrails that you might yeah. have in person. And so curious just kind of how you think about those models, you know, more broadly and kind of their their place or role in, in this broader treatment landscape. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I feel like that's sort of the going to be the perennial question in this space, which is like, how do we balance access and like clinical safety and effectiveness? And I think and hope there's an optimal point for that, but like safety should not be compromised ever. Like there's the optimal point for safety is like 100%, you know? And I think that there are some models that are frankly less safe than others because maybe, you know, they're not doing as much monitoring of patients or they are allowing patients to take treatments unguided. And so I think that we just can't compromise on safety. The rest of it though, sure, we can maybe find a balance of, yeah, it is a lot cheaper to not have to pay for a provider's oversight for a long time or like pay for like maybe a lower credential a provider to oversee you. And so maybe that is a trade-off we make with potential effectiveness. But yeah, I think as long as these companies also do not compromise on safety, then, you know, we move forward in, in the right place. Totally. And I guess, you know, uh, I'd be curious, obviously, you know, you've, you've probably talked about this space uh, in so many times, you know, over the last years to investors, to candidates. I'm yeah. sure there's been a set of folks that just kind of get it right away. Um, and then I'm sure there's there's been other conversations, too. And so if you could speak a little bit to kind of just the, the reaction you kind of get, you know, talking to folks on the investment side, talking to folks on, on the candidate side about the space as a whole. And yeah, maybe yeah. we start there. It's been really fun. Speaking of stigma, yeah, like, Stigma 101 was my parents being like, what, what is this? Like, what's going on? But I think all it comes comes down to is like the science. And I send my mom like the nature paper on MDMA or nature paper on psilocybin. And now she's the one sending me articles about psilocybin when she wakes up at five in the morning. So it's great. You know, she's kind of slung in the other direction here. But um, I think all you have to do is just point to the data because the data is hard to refute and it's subjective. So because of that, it's been pretty easy to combat the stigma. But Sort of on the other side, there's been a lot of interest too, because like you said, there's been a ton of activity in mental health and the more the merrier. At the same time, there are fewer companies that are focused on high acuity patients and fewer companies that are focused on sort of the innovation part of what's happening. So that's been exciting to see the receptivity, but both from investors and from candidates. So I guess taking a step back, I'd be curious, you know, if, if everything goes well and, and kind of Osmine's where you want it to be in, in five, 10 years, would love to just kind of hear your vision of, of what, you know, mental health care looks like as a whole, the role, you know, you and the team are playing yeah. in that, you know, paint pay me the picture of it if it all goes, uh, if it all yeah. goes well. Oh, yeah. there's just so much, so much that we can do. And it's going to be a really long, long journey and a difficult one. But I guess in the future, what I would see is us being successful and of mental health care improving for good is, you know, we have people who may experience difficult situations in the world and they're able to get the help that they need and the right type of help for them. Because what works for you is not necessarily what's going to work for me and vice versa. And more than that, I think for a lot of mental health conditions are not just environmental, they're genetic or they yeah are, are endemic in a way. We can help people actually prevent situations and to actually get them care before they even realize they need it. 
or before they, you know, end up in the hospital or are in really difficult situations. So I think that there is a world where we can actually start to predict and to be more proactive based off of some of the novel biomarkers we talked about. And when we do treat patients, whatever they get for the first time, it works, whether it's therapy, whether it's psychedelic assisted therapy, whether it's neuromodulation or even antidepressants, um, because we are going to know what's going to work for an individual based off of, you know, their EEG markers or, again, how they've used their phones, how they've engaged with their friends. Like we've got so many different signatures that we can use from different streams of data that we can predict and treat people based off of what they need. And that's kind of the, the vision that we see is like we are able to help the providers on the front line actually treat patients better, actually run their practices and focus on clinical care with better software. And we're a part of every single one of those new developments, whether it's a novel biomarker or a new drug that comes online because we've contributed data or we've helped to you know recruit patients into the clinical trials in some way. So, yeah, we hope to, to play our small but but hopefully a big part in bringing um, about this new mental health care revolution. Uh, it, it's an incredible vision. And for the sake of the world, I'm, I'm certainly rooting for it. Uh, and it, it's, it's, you know, really powerful to, to, to be working on on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm curious, you know, uh, uh, there's, there's so many different parts of what you're tackling today. What do you kind of see as like the biggest challenge on, uh, you know, right now in the business and, and kind of the hardest part of, of, of doing what you're doing today? I think that the sort of double-edged sword of being really excited and wanting to do all the things is just being really thoughtful about how we prioritize and how we resource the various initiatives in our business. And I think that is, I'm guessing is something Flatiron must have gone through as well, having the EHR and the life sciences arms of the business, especially with, you know, the funding environment being the way it is, like we just want to be extra thoughtful with how we resource. And so some questions that go through our minds are like, okay, you know, what if we went all in on life sciences right now? And like, let's just go and work with, you know, pharma and sort of neglect the clinic side of our business or swinging the pendulum the other way. Like, what if we just ignore pharma and like, let's just build an amazing clinic business and we'll figure out sort of the implications of that later. Um, those are some of the interesting questions and debates that we have behind the scenes to figure out how big of an impact we can make uh, and how we want to sort of sequence things. Yeah, that's super exciting. Well, this has been, I mean, in just an incredible amount of, of interesting information. And, and obviously you're so knowledgeable about the space. I feel like, you know, there, there's endless amounts that we could dive yeah. into here. And I'm sure uh, listeners are feeling the same way. So I guess I, I'd be curious for folks that are interested in learning more about, you know, what's happening in kind of treatment resistant depression, you know, what learning more about Osmine yeah. and the work you do, any recommendations you'd have on, on where folks can kind of go and, for and sure. learn more? Yeah, we're always excited to hear from folks. So people can always email me at lucia at osmine.org. And that is our website as well. And then in terms of resources, yeah, there's some good information out there. I think MAPS has a really good resources page. That's the manufacturer that's doing the studies on MDMA-assisted therapy. So they've got a lot of stuff on psychedelic medicine and some of the, the data and the papers that we were talking about. So I would encourage folks to take a look there. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Lucia. This is a really just a phenomenal and fascinating conversation. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's really exciting. Thanks, Jacob. Well, a huge thanks again to Lucia for a fascinating conversation. Definitely stay tuned in a few weeks. We'll have Nikhil Krishnan coming on the podcast, uh, a healthcare Twitter and meme personality, but also the founder of Out of Pocket, a really interesting community in health tech focused on bringing people into the space and making it easier to start companies. See you then.